with me. I put my water too far away. We, um, this morning, are going to finish, I should maybe, I am going to finish, but together in worship, uh, we're going to finish this sermon series that we have been in or that I have been um, leading us through these last three weeks since I returned from the two weeks away in, in China and Korea. Now, if, if you are here for the first time today, if you haven't been here for a few weeks, um, what I've done each week is just wrapped up a few of the reflections, a few of the experiences that I had while overseas and shared them together as we've contended with what it means to be the church and how do the things that the experiences of life, the things that we learn in a lot of different places in a lot of different ways, how do they begin to shape our understanding of what it means to be the church and what it means to, to, to see differently and to respond differently. And, and, and today, I think it is to, to be different and, and what that means both in what we see and, and what we do, but, but in who we are and our understanding of, of who we're called to be in Christ. So this series, as I've shared, is, is called Ignorance Abroad, and that's a reflection of me. That is directed at me because I came back realizing I knew far less than I did when I left for that trip. And, and really the experience of being in a strange land. And when I say strange, I don't mean in a, a, a derogative way. I just meant unfamiliar to me. And so that's what we have done. That's what we'll conclude today with. As I've said at each service, understand that we haven't touched on and I haven't begun to touch on all the experiences and all the stories. And I reserve the right to bring them up at any time in a sermon. And, and you will hear more of these stories. But we're going to end this kind of concentrated examination and, and storytelling, if you will. And so they'll just periodically pop up as they're appropriate to to whatever the Lord lays on my heart as the weeks and, and months are yet to come. So this morning we're going to begin with our reading, our scripture reading, and it's from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. So it's Ephesians chapter 4, the first six verses. So just six verses out of that fourth chapter of Ephesians. This is what we read. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Friends, sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. One God, one faith, one baptism. We join our hearts now. Lord, we open our spirits to your word as it is read, your word as it is proclaimed. We pray that these words be pleasing to you. They be from your Holy Spirit and that they would draw us close to you in faith and obedience, and challenge us to be the church that you have called us to be. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. I share with you that um, until Friday night, 
um, this sermon had a, a different opening. It had a different beginning, uh, a different introduction, if you will. But, but then Friday happened. And we saw in real time the worst of, of humanity, the worst of the human condition, the worst of, of I think, of evil. And we just, we, there's just no other way to describe it. There's no other way to name it. And, and we saw it literally as it was happening. I was, I was thinking about that even Friday night. As we were here, many of us were here for the, the church um, family fun night. And, and we were talking about it. We'd started to get word. But nothing quite drives the reality home the way the imagery does. Well, getting home that night and turning on the news channels and seeing as it was still taking place, as people were still fleeing through the streets and, and the terror and the panic that was kind of gripping Paris. And, and it amazed me, you know, just how we can experience in that, in that moment. That, I was re- reflecting on a, from a historical standpoint on that. You know, we, we, if we looked at 200 years of human history, the last 200 years of, of our human experience, that seems like a long time. I mean, 200 years is a long time from one perspective. But in the collective story, our collective story as, as human beings, it's a very, very short amount of time. You know, and, and having been in China, you know, in American history and, and Chinese history, fascinating. You know, we have about 300 years of it as a, as a country, less really, but that we focus on, and, and they have centuries and centuries and centuries of history. But if, but if you think about that, just 200 years of history, how far we've come. 200 years ago, in um, really actually a little over, in, in 1814, the end of 1814, the treaty was signed ending a little, human, or little American history. What war ended in 1814? The War of 1812. Yeah, a little bit of a trick question. The War of 1812 ended in 1814. The second war, the, the, the less publicized war between uh, the United States and, and, and Britain. That war ended, I believe, and I may be wrong on the date, but I want to say that the treaty was signed in November of 1814, uh, the Treaty of Ghent, signed in what's now Belgium. Now, if you know your history, you know that for months the battles continued to wage. In fact, one of the most famous battles of the War of 1812 is the Battle of New Orleans. Do you remember who the, the famous general is that led the Battle of New Orleans from the United States side? Andrew Jackson. Well, if you know your history, that battle was fought in 1815 after the treaty had been signed. Well, why? Because it took months for news to come both across the pond and to spread throughout the, I keep wanting to say the colonies, but through the states uh, because that was the speed of of the dissemination of, of knowledge and of, of experience and, and of world events. It took months and months. And so many battles were fought after the peace had been signed. And in fact, that battle is part of what made Andrew Jackson famous, what would lead him to the presidency. Should have never been fought, yet it was. Now, jump forward 100 years after that. In 1912, April of 1912 to be specific, all right, what happened significant in April of 1912? I think I heard it. You're mumbling because you're afraid. <laughs> Titanic. Did somebody say Titanic? Titanic sank in April of, of 1912. Now, at that point, news traveled faster 
But it still took a while. In fact, if you, if you go online and search the immediate headlines in Britain the next day of the sinking of the Titanic, you will read, according to the headlines, that everybody on board was saved because word, you know, the news. And so it would take days for the country to understand the full scope of what happened when Titanic sank. Now, I use those just for historical perspective. We live in a day now, and, and some of us have lived this way our whole life, and for all of us, it's been the dominant part of our lives in a time when we not only receive world events as they happen, we watch world events as they happen. They're not all bad. I remember the first time this sank, sank, you know, really landed with me, the first major world event that I knew was significant history that was happening in front of my eyes was 1989 when the Berlin Wall came crumbling down. And that was a celebration. But in more recent history, we have seen in the moment the crashing of the towers at 9-11 and on Friday night, the, the loss of life and the scrambling of people in the streets and just, again, the worst of humanity. We see it in the moment, and so we experience it in a different way, and it really hits home, and it hurts, and it, it should hurt. But I want to, to dig a little deeper for a moment because if we just stay at the surface level, at the violence and the the bloodshed and the, the terror that was perpetrated, we're going to miss a, a deeper picture of what happened there. And that is, in the midst of the worst of humanity, we are allowed to catch glimpses of the best of humanity. Now, this is not justifying or, or making it all worth it, but what I'm saying is we get to see people step up and counter violence with love, with care, with compassion. We saw that in Paris when people immediately began to open their homes. And you know what happened in that moment? It didn't matter what language you spoke, didn't matter what color your skin was, didn't matter what your political ideology was. All it mattered is people cared enough to bring people off the street into safety. And we saw cab drivers and other people that were on the streets that fought human nature because we know what human nature is. If I had a car and you had a car and we're in Paris in that moment, our nature, our natural instinct is to flee, get away from the danger. And so many chose to stay there in the heart of it because remember, they have no idea, they still don't know what could be next. And to offer safe rides and to get people out of danger's way and to step into it rather than flee from it. Same principle on a much grander scale that we saw in 9-11 when people, and especially first responders, ran into buildings when everybody was running out. We get to see something that happens in the midst of sometimes chaos, in the midst of tragedy, is we get to see that the things that often separate us, our languages and, and our politics and our, and our nationality and all these things that make us different, those things become far secondary to our shared human experience, to the fact that we are called to care for each other. And we find in those moments a unity that, unfortunately, we sometimes only find in those moments. And that might be part of the real tragedy. And we see the world come together. And we saw on the night after the attacks or the night of the attacks, uh, New York and San Francisco and Dallas and Dublin and Sydney and Epcot and places around the world that lit up with the blue and the white and the red. 
to signify solidarity with France. And we saw hockey games where the colors flew. We saw yesterday, if you're a college football fan, the Army football team, the cadets, came onto the field carrying the French flag because we get a moment to see and to be reminded that what we share is far greater than, than what is different about us. And that image, that reminder, that, that visual that we know will only last a short time. I mean, we know that in time there will be some new normal. Life doesn't seem to return to the same normal after these kind of things. But there'll be a new normal, and this will no longer be at the forefront of our consciousness. We'll never forget, but it'll never be at the forefront. And in time, our differences will sur surface back to the, to the top. But what we get to see for a moment is a great image and a great reminder of what Paul says should be the very character of the church of Jesus Christ. What we see in fleeting glimpses should be the everyday reality of who we are called to be in Christ. I want you to hear again the words I just read, but I'm going to pick up a few verses down. Listen to it again. Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who was over all and through all and in all. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Paul says to the church, you are one. You are one. Be unified in Christ. And what happens is we tend to think of that as being unified with the people that we're sitting around in church. The people that are sitting to your left and to your right and in front of you and behind you. And that is part of the call. And to be unified with the people that attend the first service and to be unified with the people that attend the second service, that is certainly part of it as well. But that is far too limiting because we sometimes lose and I sometimes lose sight of the breadth and the width and the depth of God's call to be one in Christ and what that truly means. And the most powerful experience I had in China or experiences I had in China and Korea were the moments that I got to see and experience the breadth and the width and the depth of the one body called in Christ. What it means to be the church. And that happened through opportunities of worship. Some that you'd expect and some that you might not. In each country that we visited, at various times, we got to worship with a church in China and with some churches in Korea. And we worshiped according to their traditions. We worshiped in their style. We worshiped in their places of gathering. And so in China, on the first Sunday we were there, we went to what's called a three-self church. That's what those churches, and it's a government-allowed church. It's one of the few churches that, that the, the government allows to worship and allows to gather in the area. They do this. Now, what's different in China, as a, or one of the many things that's different, is that in China, um, you have a church in a large geographic location, a one allowed church. When I came this morning to, to worship, when I came for our meeting before the first service, you know, I live a block away. The parsonage, for those of you who don't know, is just a block away. And in my traveling and my my drive, I kind of confess, it was kind of sad that I drive from the church, from the house to the church, but it was cold outside. So, um, 
But in that, in that drive, I am in eyesight, visual sight, of four churches. When I come to the first corner, I can see the sign for Harvest Community down 120th Street. And then I'm literally looking straight ahead at, at Parish Baptist. I take a right, I come to the next intersection, and there's St. Francis on one side and us on the other, four churches. And that's just in my visual. If I went a few more blocks, there's a two mo couple more. So, so we're used to seeing churches. In China, there's a church. There are underground churches more frequently, but that are allowed to congregate. There's a church. So we went and we worshiped in China. I want to show you a couple pictures of what the church looked like. Um, actually, skip through these, Joe. These, these are another, this is another building. I'm going to skip through them for a moment and uh, go to the next one. Go to the next one. I usually have to, okay, here. This was in Shanghai. And this alleyway leads to the church building. It's kind of straight ahead of you if you were looking down that alley. If you go to the next slide, Joe, you get a better look of it. This is the entrance to the church. When you come into the church, it doesn't quite look like our churches do. In fact, it's very, very simple. Uh, this is what the, the church looks like. Wooden, hard wooden pews, um, a little altar, a cross up there, but that's about it. They had microphones. That was the extent of the technology. And as we worship together, it's packed. This was a picture. I didn't, you know, I respect worship. Worship's not a photo op, so you don't want to take a lot of pictures. But I stealthily kind of put my phone in my pocket and snapped one. And uh, I thought it came out pretty well, all things considering. And that is the church in that area. And there's four or five services in the day, and they're full, 300 people. And let me tell you, folks, let me challenge you a little bit. When, when a guest comes to worship in the China church... And it's easy to tell who the guests are when you're American or, or your skin tone's different. They get up and give you their seat. They get out of their seat so you can have theirs. There is no such thing as that's my pew. Just saying. <laughs> Just saying. Um, and so we, we sat together and, and we worshiped. And here's the thing. I didn't understand a word of what they said. Not a word. The only two things I could say in Chinese were hello and thank you, and I didn't hear either of those words. I'm sure they were there, but I couldn't make them out. But I worshipped. I worshipped. I knew they were singing the hymns. I recognized the tunes. I could tell they were doing the Lord's Prayer. I worshipped because our God is greater than our languages. We express our, God, our worship not just in our words, but with our heart. And we worshipped with our brothers and sisters in China who have claimed the name of Jesus. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. The following week, we were in Korea, and we moved to the Korea church. The Korea church looks a whole lot different. That's the church in Korea we worship. Now, in Korea, like in America, there's all kinds of churches, but we worshiped at some of the big ones. That, friends, the green, that's the choir, okay? There's... 200 of them in the orchestra. And if you go to the next one, you can see the chancel. You can see the chancel area. Big church, thousands that worship. Again, didn't know a single word that they spoke. But I worshiped. Now, this is a different church. We went to another one that afternoon. This was 3 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon. 3 p.m. Full of young people. This is the praise teams up front. There's a choir to the left. They sing some of the very same songs that we sing in our contemporary worship service. They even have, you can't really tell, but down front they have dancers. The dance, the, it's high energy. It was so much fun. And you can see the next slide. You can just see how full this place was in 3 p.m. Again, 
I don't speak a word about their language, but I worshiped. I worshiped because one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I may not have known the words, but I know the God that they were praising. And I could be a part of that because the breadth and the width and the depth of the body of Christ. And so that happened. But I want to share with you one more experience that was, far, that was the most powerful that we had. This, these kids are part of a Christian school in Shanghai, China. Yes, I said a Christian school. Now, it's a little stealthily Christian. The government knows what's going on, but they can't advertise themselves as a Christian school. But these kids are part of what's called the Transformation Academy. And all their teachers, they learn English. All their teachers are missionaries. And they're all, all the staff is Christians. They gather before school every morning. The adults do, and they pray. And so these kids, on the day we went, go to the next one. You can't tell as well there. This little boy sitting here, he's in his pajamas. It was pajama day. And they were just so full of life. And so full of, of joy. And this is a school because the Chinese education system puts so much pressure on young people. Their whole academic future depends on one test they take in high school. The whole trajectory of their life depends on one test that they take. Can you imagine the pressure of that? And so this school is dedicated to the, the care of the body, body, mind, and the spirit. And so as we gathered, go to the, the last slide, if you would, right there. As we gathered together and we'd gotten the tour, this, this woman who is a volunteer, but she might as well be staff there. Her children go there. She's a Christian. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say I did not write her name down. I don't know why I neglected to do that. But, but she shared with us the story and the vision, and she shared with us about the school and, and their faith. And when it was over, we prayed for her as a group. But this is how that prayer went. We have, as I've shared with you, 47 of us were there, students together. And over half of those are international students. And so a number of the international students prayed. They started the prayer. But each student prayed in their own language. So Joanna started, and Joanna prayed in Polish. And then Sergei prayed. Sergei prayed in Russian. And, and Jason prayed, and he prayed in, a, in an Indian dialect. And, and one of our Kenyan brothers prayed in Swahili. And around the room, not everybody, but many who prayed, prayed in their, their tongue, their language. And I, um, I peeked during the prayer. I, I, I peeked. I looked. I looked to see what was going on around the room. Do not judge me because I watch you all and you do it too. <laughs> and when I did... This woman right here was weeping, tears just streaming down her face as she listened to brothers and sisters in Christ pray for her in the languages that represented the parts of the world they came from. And I don't want to, to try to guess exactly in everything that was going on in her heart, but I couldn't help but wonder, in a place where public prayer is not permitted. In a place where the faith is still suppressed and the ability to connect with other Christians is not nearly as easy as we know it to be in this country, to stand there and to hear those prayers and to know that she had brothers and sisters in Christ around the world representing churches and faith communities global that cared about what she was doing and a handful of students in a small school in Shanghai, China. I wondered if that was the root of the 
tears of joy that streamed down her face, and many, many others. It was a powerful moment, and it was a moment in the experience that allowed me to, to, to experience in a way that I never have before what it feels like to live into our profession of faith that we say over and over when we recite the Apostles' Creed. It is the one line that causes the most anxiety in people. It's the one line that I get questions about more than any other line in any other creed that we profess. In fact, when somebody walks up to me and they go, I have a question about that Apostles' Creed, I know almost exactly what their question is going to be. And it is this. Why do we believe in the Holy Catholic Church? Over and over, that throws people off. This experience was, reminded me what it felt like to be the Holy Catholic Church. And understand, that does not mean the Roman Catholic Church. Though they're included, okay? They're in there. It doesn't mean to be the Methodist Church, though we're included. It doesn't mean to be the Baptists, though they're included, or the Episcopalians, or the Presbyterians, or the Independents, or whoever you want to throw in there. Catholic simply means universal. It simply means the world. It means to be the one body of Christ, independent of location and language and ethnicity and income and worldview. It is the church rooted in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And as I sat there and listened to prayers in Polish and prayers in Russian and prayers in Swahili and prayers in Hindi and prayers in all the languages that were spoken, I thought, this is the Holy Catholic Church. And what a powerful experience that proved to be. We are one body in Christ. And we need to remember it. We need to remember it. Because it's just too easy to forget because we get distracted by the secondary things. I, I was thinking about this this week, I, I have the privilege in Stephen ministry uh, to, to teach the first session uh, and the last. They allow me to teach the first, and then they figure if anybody comes back for the second, they're going to stick. So, um, but, but I preach the first, I preach, I lead the first and the last. And we talk about, the, this is the, what they call the caregiver's compass in Stephen ministry. And as some of you know this well, some of you maybe not so much. And around the outside are the words that are some of the key values and characteristics of Stephen ministry. Compassionate, full of faith, skilled, and trustworthy. These are all really, really important for Stephen ministry. They're very valued and they're the skills they work and develop and, and nurture in the, in the process and in the caregiving ministry. But what is most important is here at the center. Now, this may not be a symbol that's familiar to many of you. It looks like a P and an X. But it's a chi and a rho, the Greek letters chi and rho, which are the first two letters of the Greek word Christos, which is Christ. And it symbolizes Jesus. And it reminds the Stephen ministers that at the core of their identity, the core of their care, the core of their call is Jesus. It's Jesus. This stuff all matters, but what the center is the most important, and that's Jesus. This is true for our church. This is true for all our churches. We all have things around the outside. The way we do baptism, the way our polity is, the way we structure our administration, the kind of ministries we're engaged in. I'm not saying that doesn't matter. It does, to a point. But at the center, whether you're Methodist or Baptist or Catholic or Presbyterian or whatever, ought to be Jesus. And when Jesus is at the center, we're one, even in our differences 
even on our dis- one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And sometimes we forget that. And sometimes we get distracted by the things that make us different. We forget that the tree of faith has a lot of distinct branches. And all those branches... You know what? Sergei in Russia, he and I have very different worldviews. Very different worldviews. Especially when we talk politics and Putin. Very different. (laughs) I'll stop. Um, But he's a brother in Christ. Because at the center is Jesus. We don't have to agree on all that stuff. And it's fun sometimes. In fact, here's a good thing. It's a good thing we don't all agree. It really, really is. The tree of faith has a lot of distinct branches. And it ought to. Because if it didn't, we'd be in trouble. You know what you call a tree with no branches? A stump. It's a stump. Yeah, or dead. Um, Very distinct. But one. One vine, if you will. And that's Jesus. And that's what we need to remember. That which unifies us and make us one. I have more in common with my Russian believer friends and my um, Chinese believer friends and my African believer friends than I do with unbelievers in this country. That's not judgmental, but we share the bond of the Spirit and all are invited into that. But that unites us as one body. And that was a powerful lesson for me. And I constantly have to remember this. In fact, last week when Hannah was up here and she was sharing her testimony, if you were here last week, of of distributing these shoe boxes to children in, in Ecuador. And I was watching those pictures and I remember thinking, man, what a great thing we get to do for those children. What a great thing we get to do for those children. And I would tell you what, God kicked me in the butt this week about that phrase, those children. I didn't mean it dismissively in any sense of its way, but God started speaking to my heart and saying, hey, Chris, how come they're not your children? How come? How come your thinking is, what a wonderful thing we're not doing for our children? Because a lot of these kids are raised in Christian homes. A lot of these kids are in Christian communities. A lot of these kids have been baptized into the faith. Not all of them. And those who aren't, that's what we're praying will happen. Why aren't they your children? Well, because they live in a different country. Jesus said, what difference does that make? And I went, I don't know. Because it doesn't. Because it doesn't. They're our children. They're our brothers and sisters. It is our faith in Christ, the Cairo at the center. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. This entire thing has been about opening our eyes to see differently, opening our hands to respond differently. But how about we open our hearts to think differently, to understand who we are, not to the detriment of our relationships, but to remember that our church, the church, goes far greater and far deeper than sometimes we recognize. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's who we're called to be. We see glimpses of that in the world when tragedy strikes. But it not not to be a glimpse in the church of Jesus Christ. It should be an everyday reality. Let's live in to Paul's words. I want to close with this from Ephesians chapter 4. Just a, I mean, Ephesians chapter 2. Just a few chapters before what I read. Two verses, 19 and 20. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, 
but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. Remember, who's not invited into God's household? Nobody's not invited to God's household. That's probably not good English, but he says, you are all members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Let's remember who's at the center, who's at the heart that unites us together. That's Jesus Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for your invitation to us, to the family of God, to the household of faith. And thank you for the reminder that that is far deeper and wider than we can even begin to imagine. Thank you for our brothers and sisters around the world who remind us that we are one in Christ. May we live into that. We pray now and always in Christ's holy name. Amen. Friends, let's